but I would separate my my mission from my business. And uh, you know, you work five days a week, you go to church, you think missional, and and I've come to realize that my business is my mission, and that in God's economy, that's the only thing that makes sense. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Thank you very much for tuning in for another episode on the Fort. I'm excited to talk with a good friend of mine, Holt Lunsford, who runs the company Holt Lunsford with me today. Holt and I have gotten to know each other over the last year. And he's fascinated me really with his demeanor and his outlook on life. I think we'll have a great conversation on business, but um, Holt has appeared to me to be one of the most balanced individuals I've come across, and I'm really excited to hear what he has to say today. So thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Can you give like your two minute who you are and what brought you to today? Well, I'll I'll start early in that I was uh, blessed to be uh, raised by great uh, parents in West Texas. And so much of who I am is a result of that. And uh, went to Abilene Christian University, got an accounting major, moved to Dallas uh, because I had this misguided notion I wanted to be wealthy. (laughs) And I also had a path to it uh, through real estate uh, that I'd developed this these ideas in college about how I could do that and real estate was the vehicle and so I was married my junior year in college wow my wife and I came to Dallas with no contacts or or influence of any type and and got started in in the business and how did you get started in the business well uh, one of the key elements to my uh, dream page in professional dream page was I needed to own buildings. Yep. And so uh, I looked for the best company in the world to own buildings, and that was Trammell Crow Company yep. at the time. Um, and uh, so I'd, I would work for free, but I was fortunate to do a deal with a Crow partner, and he liked me and hired me because they wouldn't hire you unless you had a Harvard MBA. Yeah. And I didn't have that. But I did impress this uh, partner who hired me, and then I was exactly where I wanted to be. Right. And my goal uh, from the very beginning was to learn how to own buildings. And I went to school on them and uh, learned that trade. And after six years, I'll never forget the, um, the afternoon my senior partner came in and because the economy blew up. Right. And uh, said, Holt, if you think you're ever going to own a building with Crow, you're crazy. Those days are over. And that's when I started charting my exit because my dream page was to own buildings. So yep. at 20, uh, 29 years old with three boys under the age of five, <laughs> uh, I left. Wow. And started our business. Why, uh, why do you think it is that so many of the great real estate companies, especially here in Texas, are all part of that Trammell Crow class of kind of your generation yeah. well first of all it was a, an incredible uh, culture and environment uh, mr crow uh, basically gave you his balance sheet yep. and so and there was a period of time for about five years where he spent a lot of time at harvard business school and he hired some people that believed in smarter is better right and so they would recruit from Harvard and Stanford. For instance, my freshman class had 51 Harvard MBAs. Oh, wow. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Wow. Going and hiring 51 Harvard MBAs. So you bring them all to Dallas. You have this incredible uh, bandwidth and, and aggressive, aggressive talent. And 
and you give them a blank check and say, go to these 96 cities. Yep. And uh, if you're, you had to start leasing, we all started making $18,000 a year in yep. leasing space. And after about uh, 18 months, you'd kind of self-select. I mean, either you made it or you didn't. Yep. And if you're good at what you did, well, then they would start working you towards this partner path. And and it was a, so it was a marvelous environment. It created all these uh, this collegial feel amongst like-minded, like-age young men and women. And and then of course the the world blew up. And so you could look back and say. Uh, and it, what year is this? Uh, this would have been things blew up in '86. Okay, and. Uh, you know, it was unlike any blow up that someone your age, Chris, would even. I was young at the time, so you, uh, you can't even imagine how bad it was. Uh, we built more office buildings in Dallas from 81 to 85 than has been built since. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine that? Yeah. And so that's how oh. out of control it was. And uh, the SNLs blew up. The Tax Act of '86 is what caused a lot of it. It blew up syndicates, and and so it was just a terrible time. So basically, if you looked at at the model, although it was a wonderful place to be, if you looked at the business model, right, it didn't work because it disbanded. Yep. And uh, and so there there are other models like the Heinz Company and others that that made it through all those cycles that that likely had a better model. But I don't think there's anybody that had a better aggregation of talent model right. than the Travel Crow Company. That's fascinating. So probably because when opportunity arose in the in '86, you had a lot of guys that believed in themselves, Harvard MBAs that said, "I can go take on the world." Exactly. And those same people today, I'm fortunate to speak up there, and you, it's hard to get them interested in real estate. Yep. Because they want to get in private equity, and they they tend to chase wherever the money is. And right. At, uh, another thing that it's interesting how some anecdotal, consequential things happen that that can create a story. But there was a book called "The Hundred Best Companies to Work for in America." Right. And the Travel Crow Company was number one. <laughs> so in the book, it was well read, and it talked about secretaries that were millionaires. Yep. So you know you send that and. It put that in front of a bunch of MBAs, and they're like, let's all go there. Let's go. <laughs> let's eat. Um, so, 86, you have three boys, and you decide to leave. Walk us through that journey a little bit. Actually, I started in 86. I left in 93. So, it was um, uh, basically I started charting my exit, uh, and uh, I got the, the, the conversation I I gave you about my senior partner happened in uh, 1990. I'll digress just a bit, but yep. from that point, I started trying to replace my income. And so I started buying oil and gas leases <laughs> just west of uh, Fort Worth here in Young County. And uh, I'd go out on the weekends and work these stripper wells and try to make a two-barrel well, a five-barrel well. And basically by doing that, I, I replaced my income. Right. And uh, come home on Monday, clean my fingernails and lease industrial space. <laughs> uh, so my wife and I, she'd do the books and we built this little old business. And it, that helped give me courage to make the decision to leave. Uh, and and I got lucky, too, because I, I bought $16 oil and a three-year payout. And uh, President Bush... Uh, invaded Iraq and oil went to 60 bucks. So yeah. I got to pay my debt off in about uh, 12 months. And, and so things worked there. And, and I, that, that's probably one of the few things, Chris, that I can look back and I've tried to wonder why was I in the oil business? Because you didn't stay in it. I didn't stay in it. And that's the only, I've, that's been a head scratcher for years. But yeah. I think uh, providentially it may have been just to give me the courage to leave uh, did somebody give you that idea, or how did you know no, to go buy stripper I had, wells? I, I, one, I was from that area, too. I worked on rigs in the summer, mm. so I was familiar with it. Yeah. And uh, so I just grabbed and I had a, a, a lender that would loan me the money on oil and gas leases, and so I did it. And But it never really transitioned to anything else um, like my other businesses have. Right. And so... 
but I can say it was maybe part of the, the courage decision to leave. So I left and really didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I told my Crow partner, the Crow partners, that I wasn't going to take their business. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but because uh, I wanted to leave on good terms. And so I left, and then some things started happening that you really can't explain. Right. Um, but uh, looking back, they're, they're foundational to uh, my real estate business and probably others as well. And I can speak briefly about those. Yep. Um, one is I, I got a call from a tenant. Uh, in 1993, there weren't any there wasn't any construction, right? And uh, but I got a call from a tenant that said, "Where you been?" I said, "Well, I left Crow." And he said, "We want to build a a building." Yep. And uh, we'd like for you to do it. And I said, "Well, when did I pitch?" He said, "We don't want you to pitch. It's yours. You just come build it." And uh, that was a result of at Crow. I always felt like the tenants were my tenants yep. and I treated them as such. And, and the tenants that I created these friendships with felt like they were leasing from me, not uh, the Crow company. Right. So when this guy had a need, he called me and I didn't have to compete for it because he trusted me. And so building trust and taking care of a tenant uh, is one of the, uh, stools, the legs on the stool that is a foundation for our company, taking care of the customer. And so I built a 200,000 square foot build a suit in 1993 when no one else, I mean, the cranes were stacked, you yep. know, and, and so that was my first client. About uh, a year, well, about six months later, I got a call from uh Mr. Crow's daughter, Lucy Billingsley, and uh, she was going through a big refinance on some buildings that uh, she owned, and I had leased her buildings uh, while I was at Crow, and she had confidence that I knew that market better than uh, the, the Crow representatives that were on it, Right. so she said, if you'll lease it, I'll give it to you, <laughs> so I picked up two million square feet of leasing assignments from the Crow family. Yep. Which, I mean, you can't explain that. Right. And so that, and that, so the reason the other leg to the stool is market knowledge. Right. That people will pay you for market knowledge. And the interesting thing about our business is that there are no cheap decisions. There are no small real estate deals. Right. So every decision that capital makes is a big decision. Yep. And they will overpay you for the right information. I'm astounded at what people get paid in my business who know what they're doing. Yep. And they, they're, we're overpaid. I tell people, tell our young group, we're just, we're overpaid. My dad would work a year to make what we can make in a 30-day transaction. Yep. You know, so market knowledge is everything. And so... We, in our company, we are really big on market knowledge. We don't let, and I lucked into that. Tremel Crow Company said, Holt, you're going to be in the industrial space. You're going to lease buildings north of LBJ between Central and 35. That's it. Right. You've got to know that market. If it, if it goes a quarter mile past 35, you need to call your buddy in the Los Colinas market. Right. So they forced you to learn that market, and because I lucked into that, uh, I learned that concept, and that was my second piece of business. Was was uh, the Billingsley Company, and and Lucy's been very good to me. And I actually trained. She had her uh, nephew that wanted to get in the business, and I trained him. Mm -hmm. And with the notion, she said, as soon as you get him trained, I'm going to take all that product back. Yeah. So I trained him. She took all the product back, and so they've been uh, very good good to me. Uh, and then the third thing was um, I got a call from a, a broker in town who now is a chief investment officer at Hillwood. Okay. But at the time was just a broker that we had done business with. And he said, I got a guy in town who's trying to buy buildings. And uh, he bought them in North Dallas. I told him, you know, North Dallas, 
better than anybody. Will you come down and visit with us? I did that. And um, that happened to be this guy said, will you do my due diligence? <laughs> I said, great. And he asked, what will you charge me? I said, $75 an hour. I thought that was plenty of money. Hindsight, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, but I, I did his due diligence. And uh, right after he bought the buildings, he said, well, now we need somebody to lease and manage those. Would you do that? And I said, well, sure. Yep. I didn't really know what that was. I'd never been in the service business really prior to that. Right. I'd been in the development business at Crow. So uh, that same company was one of the largest pension advisors in the country, a company called TA Associates. And they bought billions of dollars of real estate in Dallas. And we've done every transaction. We lease and manage every warehouse, every wow. office building. And so that, that, that foundational tool was, uh, there's several lessons there. One is market knowledge, but two is treating the brokerage community right. correctly. I mean, this guy endorsed me. Right. And because I'd always treated the brokerage community fairly. So I got that piece of business there. And if you look at those market knowledge, uh, treating tenants with respect and treating brokers with respect, that's, that's the foundation on which our service company is built and which is now 76 million feet and 2,500 tenants in Texas. How many people do you have working for you now? We've got in the service business, uh, 175. Wow. So, yeah. How, uh, how much of the, the, those, and those are three fascinating stories. If you had to say a percentage, how much of business success is luck and how much of it is uh, being smart or hard work or things that you can control? Well, there's a lot of uh, statements about how luck intersects with hard work. And the harder you work, the luckier you yeah, get. Exactly. But, you know, our what we want to do at HLC and at Frontier, our investment company, is be in the game. Yep. We don't market time. Uh, I've never... I just sold one of my businesses up until this time. I've, I've been several business lines and I've never sold a business because I've always chosen businesses that I enjoy and want to be in. Right. And uh, we don't market time. So if you're in the game, right, you're going to be hitting singles, doubles, good and bad markets. And then every now and then you're going to get lucky like the rest of your peers <laughs> and something incredible is going to happen. Right. But when that goes away and the dust settles, we're in the game. We're in the game. We're, we're just sticking with what we do. Yep. And so we have several mantras in our business and our service company is called 1018. We grow 10%. We have an 18% net margin. That's it. Right. We stick with it. And if we grow more than that, great. But we will grow 10%. We will have an 18% net margin. And we have other mantras in these businesses that, that in the bank, uh, same thing. We we started a bank 11 years ago, and it's we have these disciplines, and I don't intend to sell the bank, I intend to keep the bank. And we hire to that so we get the best talent because uh, these young people don't want to go to a bank and then it sells to somebody else and they work for a big money center bank. So. Uh, it's being in the game and yep. if you're in the game and you're good at what you do, you're going to get lucky some years and, and then you're back in the game. Right. Is it 10, is 10, 18 an annual every, target? Every year we will not, if somebody submits a budget that's less than 10% growth, yep. we kick it back. Yep. And if somebody submits a budget that's less than 18% margin, we kick it back. Now we do have years where did somebody tell you about those numbers or how? No, I, I, uh, that's another struggle with me and an entrepreneur and never working have worked for anybody. Everything I'm learning, Chris, is trial and error. Right. So, uh, you know, I was pushing our margins too high. There was a period of time where uh, I was really pushing uh, margins hard and pushing our people too hard. I wouldn't be fair with our people. Looking back, I can see that. Um, and, but they would challenge, well, you know, why do we, why you want to make this kind of money and these kind of margins? And 
So I spent about a year looking at the public markets, looking at other companies to, to figure out what is a good growth rate. And I've got friends in private equity and I'd say, if you were looking at me to buy, what would you, if I had this growth rate, would you buy me? If I had this growth rate, would you buy me? What would the multiple difference be? And through that aggregation of information, I came up with what I thought was fair for me as a, as the, at the time I was only shareholder, but me and my wife yeah, and, uh, and then our employees and their quality of life. Uh, and if I did take on new shareholders would be fair to them. And so I felt like 10% growth at a minimum is what you should be growing if you're vibrant. And I felt like we could maintain an 18% margin, which was higher than my peer group, but lower than I was wanting. Right. And so uh, it's it's worked out. And we can, for the last uh, seven, eight years, we've managed that pretty, saving except for investments. And we speak of investments and maybe in a new division or a new city. We know we can't get 1018 right. hiring people. So we'll set that aside in the budget and say, okay, you've got this period of time to get to 1018. If you don't get there, well, then we've made a bad investment. All right. Are you willing to grow more than 10, obviously more than 10%? Like what if a year comes along where it's 40 or 50% growth? Absolutely. No, we do it. Okay. So those are minimums. Yep. Okay. Those are minimums. How long after you got started until you really started hiring people? Well, pretty quick. Uh, and that came about from this institution who I'd never done a budget, but after they bought about three buildings, they bought three buildings mid-year and then came September and they sent me a budget, <laughs> which I'd never seen. And I called my former controller at Crow and said, I just received something. I don't have any idea what it is. Can you help? She came back by the office after work and said, well, that's a budget. And I said, well, would you do it for me? <laughs> so my first budgets were done by uh, Crow employees in the evening. Yep. And, uh, and so I quickly could see that I was, I either needed to get in this business or get out of it. Yep. And so get in I started, the game. yeah, I started hiring people. And I did a very poor job of it. I didn't know how to hire anybody. I was 27, yep. made a lot of mistakes. And Looking back and knowing that you weren't good at it at the time, what were you doing that wasn't good that maybe somebody listening to might fall into that trap? Because I, I have the same, we all do. I think yeah, it's impossible. It's Interviewing and hiring is a skill. It's not a right. No, you're right. That's, it's, that's a good word. Well, I, I think I would have, one thing I never had, Chris, was a board or really uh, a group of, of advisors. And I could have, my first board was when I founded the bank. And I have one because the government tells you you have to. And I've seen the value in a board now. I really trust and respect our board. It's made up of my mentors and so not only is it fun to be with them, but I'm just learning a tremendous amount from them. And I would say if I could do it over again, I'd have a board at uh, HLC when I started. And they could have probably helped me because we, we see some, uh, we're making better decisions at the bank level uh, because we've got people. One of my board members was on the board at Blue Cross Blue Shield. So he was head of the comp committee. Well, I get to get the benefit of that, yep. you know, which I didn't have at the time. So I was making all kinds of mistakes and, and we were growing so fast that the nature of the business that I was in is that we didn't pitch business for five years. So we didn't need to. I didn't have a collateral piece for five years. It all came to us. Right. And then I could see that uh, I wasn't being a steward of the business because we had two or three clients and I was hiring all these people. And if one of them got cross with us, well, then I'd have to let people go. So we made a thoughtful push into business development, created a collateral piece, got on the road. And our business tripled in about 12 months. Wow. And we ended up with about 10 clients and 
which really felt good. What felt better about it than the, the revenue was the security of our team and that no one client could could hurt us. And, right. You know, and that gets better. We now have 46 clients, and so there's no one client that they're all extremely important, but uh, not one of them you could, know, break you. could break us. And so uh, hiring is the, the most difficult thing, and we still struggle with it. We're better at it. Lots of eyes on a candidate is something that we do now that we didn't do before. So, uh, And there's a book called Who that you can go through that gives you a pretty good format and filter Right, that's helpful in hiring people. But, boy, I made a lot of mistakes early on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, business is people, and people yeah. are business. Now, having said that, I've got uh, several people that have been with me since the beginning. Really? 26 years. And um, they're they're just the core of our company. And, and we've got a whole over 30 that have been with us over 10 years. So we've got, we're getting a, a really good core built up. Right. How, how does that make you feel as somebody that has had people that have been there 26 years, a new class of 10 years plus? I mean, the more people ask me what excites me about Fort, it's really what excites me is the opportunities for the people here. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a tremendous honor to work with these people. And um, I've grown to, to realize that, that, you know, everybody that I get to work with has been put in my life for a reason. Right. And uh, whether we get to be with them for a month or 26 years, it's an honor to, to share life together because we see each other more than we get to see our families. families. And, and so I used to view it differently, but I, today I'm just so grateful. Everybody, whether I get to be with them a short period of time or a long period of time is instrumental and I feel a God-ordained appointment for yep. them to come through our system. You can have the most talented resume on the planet, but somebody that has been in your organization and knows where the the good, the bad, the everything, you just cannot trade that. No. There's no amount of Harvard MBA and anybody that could replace somebody that's been with you 26 years. That's right. No, it's, and we even, when we, when I finally uh, did see the importance of shareholders, uh, we gave a large allocation called loyalty shares. Mm-hmm. So we would, we, we uh, sold shares to employees based upon their ability to grow our business. Uh, but a large portion of it was based upon their loyalty to the business. Wow. And so we gave loyalty discounts to people because... How did you measure that, or was it... Well, it was tenure. Okay. So a guy had been there five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, got a bigger discount. Yep. And got more stock offered, more loyalty shares than someone that may be extremely crucial to your business growth that have only been there two years. So right. maybe your top producer was scratching his head saying, wait a minute, why did they get that stock? Well, they got this. I'm big on loyalty. Yep. And uh, because it's, it is hard to find. It's hard. And, and, and to that point, do you have any opinion or comment on just kind of this new, the, the new generation of folks coming into the business world? It's common now for younger folks to have three or four jobs by the time they're 30. Um, and that's not anymore looked at as a knock maybe than it was two decades ago. Had, if you moved once in the first 10 years, that was weird. Yes. How, um, how, how do you think the workforce or, or maybe just speak specifically to yourself, what are you doing to attract kind of that younger generation that, that is seeing all their peers bounce around? Well, First of all, we, I, I don't think we can blame this generation because they're being taught that in school. Right. And one, they're being taught that, and two, the way corporate America has behaved to their parents uh, has reinforced it. So used to that a, a company would be loyal to, a, to an employee, and then we got in the 80s and 90s with private equity. Private equity that would chew you up and spit you out and 
And so some of it is scar tissue that they may have seen their parents have. And, and then a large portion of it is they're being taught that in school that, hey, you can have multiple careers and, and be fulfilled. And, but that in some businesses, mine included, that flies in the face of where I started with one of our legs, like market knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, how can you become an expert if you're gone in if a year. If you're gone in five years or you change industries. Right. And you can't in ours. And so, um, and I would make the case that that's, that concept translates to all businesses. You know, when I have a cold or uh, some minor illness, it's okay to go to care now. Yep. But I pay a guy $100 an hour to fix me. Right. If I have a brain tumor, right, care now is not an option, right, and I don't go and ask for a discount. You know, you pay for expertise, and the only way you become an expert is if you stick with something and you work at it, and so you have this. So, whether you believe it or not, there's a business case to be made for getting with a industry. One, you got to spend some time and pick the right industry. Don't pick something that's going to go out, but right. Real estate, energy, banking uh, are all industries that are going to be around and and pick a geography uh, because the second most important thing other than your market knowledge is influence. Right. And you're probably seeing some uh, wind at your back now that you've been in your business for a while that every transaction get, gets easier because you did a good job with capital or with investors and so it takes a while to build influence. Yep. If, you, if you're mobile enough to say, well, I'll start in Austin, then I'll move to Houston, then I'll move to Atlanta, you're missing out on that, the leverage of influence in a community in the, in, in, with your vendors and customers and, and investors. And so there is something to be said for uh, sticking with something and not being in a hurry. The proverb says, "Wealth hastily gotten will dwindle." It's a, it's a long path, and yep. uh, and you you just gotta stick with it. I can remember when I first got started and just seeing, you know, folks that had been in it for a long time. Even though maybe I felt like I was more talented or but I wasn't getting the deal and they were always getting it and I could just never understand. And now 15 years later, even with the young guys here, they're just telling them like, it's going to take a long time, anything in life worth having, you have to be patient for and work hard at. But every year that goes by to your point that that influence compounds year after year. And even though in the early years, it's one to two to four to eight and it seems small, it's going to, it's going to exponentially grow. And, I told the team the other day here, my goal in year one was to buy one single family house. My goal this year is to get rid of 50. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I could have never imagined that we would buy a single family home our first year. And now, you know, every year it's, we don't have the 10, 18 rule, but, and we do set goals here, but my main goal has always been, let's just get a little bigger this year. And it just kind of keeps stacking up and adding up. Um, But it's patience. It is. What within real estate, has there any been anything that's changed dramatically since you started in 86 to where we are today, or is the fundamentals still the fundamentals? Well, there's certainly been sector change, and um, the way the consumer buys now has changed our industry. So, uh, and we're fortunate, one of the sectors we're in, industrial, is a mm-hmm. net beneficiary of that. And so... Uh, buying online and and the way that product gets to a customer uh, is a big winner for industrial and that's likely the largest shift I've seen right uh, in 25 years Uh, you know you have office markets come and go and you have retail get hot or not get hot but to see a fundamental shift where retail is is getting crushed and industrial is is getting the, the benefit of it is a big fundamental shift. So, yes, yes, that's a change. I don't know that there's any big changes 
I mean, there's some capital changes. You know, the REITs changed us a bit, but the way capital changes, uh, whether it's different sources of capital or different uh, structure of capital, really doesn't change the fundamentals at the local level. Right. And so, you know, I can say we're doing the same thing. It's back to just being the game. We're doing the same thing that we've always done. and. We're so lucky to be in Dallas-Fort Worth. Oh, I know. If if we were being interviewed in another city, it'd be completely different. But everything here works because of our pro-growth environment in the state and the can-do environment and job creation. So it's all good in Texas. Texas is uh, the land of opportunity as I see it. If we're all at the glue factory, we're at least the we're the nicest horse at That's the glue right. factory. We were talking earlier a little bit just about how do we just call it maybe balance. Um, and what, again, one of the things that really I think the person that introduced us was kind of on this premise, and I've been on this kind of search for more of balance in my life. I don't say work-life balance because I don't look at it as two separate things. It's just more. I love what I do here, so it's it's hard to to turn it off. But at the end of the day, if I was, you know, laying on my deathbed, I'd probably be wanting to talk to my family and my friends and God and maybe and, and obviously my employees. But the the business as itself wouldn't probably be the most important thing in my life. And you've done a really good job of that. Has has that been through mentorship or how, how have you kind of put your life into perspective? You know, being intentional, I think, is the greatest tool for anybody that's, uh, for anybody, but certainly for somebody that's driven. And uh, because being intentional uh, will curb your ambition in the correct way. And so I always wanted, I had a misguided notion, I've said that earlier, I'll tell you why it's misguided in a minute, but misguided notion to be wealthy. I don't know where it came from. I grew up on a farm, uh, but it was there. And so that was a desire. And I also had a strong desire to uh, have a great marriage and to have kids. And with my marriage and my kids, I had a no regrets policy. So I didn't want to look up in 18 years or after they graduate or up until graduation and say, if I'd only done X and I chose 18 years because that's a period of time you have with them. Right. And so I said, whatever it takes, I'm going to have no regrets with my children. It's not to say that something can't go wrong. It's just, if it did, I'd say I did all I could do. Right. And same with my marriage. So I was intentional about starting a business about keeping my marriage together and about having uh, well-adjusted kids, a godly heritage. And everything else got left behind. So friendships, I have a lot of acquaintances, but I'm just now making friends. Wow. And because I didn't make the time for friends, if uh, that if friends meant golf, I didn't have time for golf. If, right. if friends meant travel, I didn't have time for travel. And so I got what I wanted, and that's what being intentional is about. But I'm thankful that I identify what I wanted because... How did you know you wanted that? Was that just it probably came from my uh, family and my my parents. And, and, you know, I'm a a Christian, a man of faith, and and so I kind of knew what Scripture says about what's important. And you touched on something earlier, mentors. I had a tremendous, I still have a tremendous amount of mentors, and they started in, in college. And these are business giants. Yep. Many of them are uh, still on my board. Many of them I still meet with. And I chose my mentors. I think this is important. I lucked into this, but choose your mentors by what they're good at. Right. Some people will choose a mentor that's great at business, but his family's wrecked. Well, don't ask for family advice from a mentor whose family is wrecked. Right. Um, so I had family mentors. 
I had business mentors and those have served me well. So it was the things that I was intentional about likely was had to do with the mentors I had with my upbringing and then just reflecting on when this is all over, what do I want to, what do I want to be remembered by? Um, So I've, I'm just so blessed to have a, a great marriage of 35 years. I've got three sons that are just remarkable. And I don't, and and I want to touch on one thing we talked about a second ago that I just think is fascinating. What did you do? What did you give your kids for their 18th birthday? Well, uh, I gave them a, well, I'll start with the story. My father was an intentional man, very simple, but uh, very focused. And his goal was to make sure that it was to love God and love others. And he wanted to make sure that his children love God and love others. So there were five of us, and my father got a Bible and read it cover to cover for me and one for my four siblings uh, with our personality in mind, with our strengths and weaknesses in mind. So, And he gave that to me later in life when I was in my 40s. And then he started doing that for each grandkid. Now there were 16 of them. So uh, he read a Bible cover to cover for each of my boys with personal notes on every page for their personality and strengths and weaknesses. And then he gave it, then I did the same. So I'd take that same Bible. He had blue ink, I had red ink, and and I would read it cover to cover. It takes a year mm-hmm. uh, and personalize it for my son, sons. And we gave it, my father and I gave it to my boys when they turned 18 so they've each got you know our thoughts on their life our thoughts on our life uh, what we think is important themes that we developed about humility human nature telling the truth just weights and measures whatever uh, business advice personal advice it's all in that bible and that's that's really our heritage now Dad gets the credit. He did that 21 years. Think wow. about that. <laughs> Pretty incredible. That's intentional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just uh, that's just one of the coolest gifts. I mean, I couldn't think of anything better. I've, I've got something in my wallet. My dad passed away seven years ago, but my sister made me this thing. She, she had found a note, something that he had written and putting on my desk that just said, I'm proud of you and I love you, Dad, mm-hmm. and had it memorialized in this little metal uh i'll pull it out this little thing and it's it's the, i love it more than anything Isn't that awesome i'm telling you the power of a spoken word from a dad yeah it's and unfortunately we see the power on the negative side you know how many i've been to prisons and and had a lot of all these men and if you usually find somebody with a low self-esteem you can trace it back to a spoken word of a dad yep. or the absence of a dad. So it's so powerful, and we've got to be so intentional to use the right words and the right tools yep. to speak into our kids. And it's tough. It gets tougher to do in a world where there's Instagram and Facebook oh, yeah. and they're yeah. stuffing their face all day long. We'll, we're coming down the stretch here. If, if you had to give your 21-year-old self some advice... What would you tell him? And I want to get back to the misguided thought on wealth. Yeah. Well, if I had a do-over, uh, I'd love people more. Yep. I'd love my my employees and the people I got to work with more. I for for many many years I saw my job as an employer as a contract, and. Uh, I provided a great place to work, and if they provided a great service and benefit to the company, then we were even. Yep. And I didn't start viewing uh, my role as an employer, as a ministry, until about five years ago, and realized that uh, I could have been using this business in ways, far more important ways than just making money. And, and that's the easy part for me. I'm so blessed. I, I've uh, running a business 
and starting a business comes easy. I enjoy it, and uh, I, I feel like that's what God uh, created me to do. Right. He created others to do other things, and, and but I would separate my my mission from my business. And uh, you know, you work five days a week, you go to church, you think missional, and and I've come to realize that my business is my mission, and that in God's economy. That's the only thing that makes sense. Why, if if it wasn't that way, then I'd be off mission five days a week. Yeah. And so, if Fort Capital, if HLC and the bank and the logistics company are my mission, then every day I get to be on mission. Yeah. Which means I've got to do some things differently. Which starts with loving your people, getting to know your people, knowing the point where you can minister to them, where you can serve them and not keep them arm's length. So I, I missed out on a lot of hundreds, maybe thousands of opportunities yep. to do that until I figured that out. Uh, so that would be a do-over. Yeah. Um, but I've got, I'm 55, I've got lots of time. I know you do. So I'm, we are pouring the coal on that concept yep. now at our companies. And, and you're not somebody that I see ever really hanging it up you might oh, no, no. go into the office a little less but that that i enjoy what i do and now i enjoy business but now i enjoy it even more because we've got this mission-minded initiative which includes two full-time em- employees that all they do is figure out how to serve our our people and we're seeing marvelous results uh, from it both uh, personal results and business results people who who are cared for want to stay mm-hmm. they want to they're loyal and so uh, selfishly it's working in ways that I wouldn't have anticipated but I, I would if I had to do over I, that would be it and and then I'll get back to this misguided notion I always thought uh, and I had very ambitious uh, financial goals and 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 I met them yeah, but every time I'd meet them I'd set a new mark ah. And what I realized is that money doesn't make us happy. Uh, money just gives us options. Finds time. Well, it gives us options. It gives me options that maybe somebody doesn't have. And I could take somebody that's worth a billion dollars and I can do everything they want to do. They, you know, they may just have more options. They may, they may fly certain, somewhere in a G5 and I, they got crocodile seats in exactly, their eyes, but that's it. And money does not make us happy, and so, and that that proved true fairly quickly because I could even see with my kids that we had the option to go places at spring break, and we went. and And then there were others here in town that don't have the options to do that, and they were just as happy as my kids were whining about how cold it was in the lift line. Yeah. You know, and so um, uh, I've I've come to realize that uh, if I think about money any other way than that, it'll mess you up. It's fascinating you say that and, and making an analogy to real estate. And I've told my partner this often, and it's something that I became really aware of really early on was, um, you know, you get on site, you know, we're building this building right behind us. And you have the developer there who's maybe the the guy that makes the money and the architect who's paid well and the engineers and you have your contractors and and then you have um your subcontractors and and the guys that are willing to get on the roof when it's 110 degrees and work for nine hours a day and every day we'd be on site and at about noon you'd look at the tree to the right and there was 10 guys underneath that tree having the time of their life and then there was the other group of us that were in the building. Oh, this sucks. This window's out of place. It's not high enough. How to... And there's really was something to be said when the pattern, no matter what job site you're on or anything, and I'm not saying that the, the people that I'm with weren't happy too, but when the people that are always laughing the hardest are the ones that maybe when I was a lot younger, I would have said, I don't want to work on a roof in 110 degree heat, yes. but I do want to be happy. And the ones that are consistently the happiest are the ones on the roof that are underneath the tree having a blast. 
what was that telling me? And, and I don't even know the full answer, but I think it's headed to where kind of where you are is the values that we place in life or the prestige or the title. They're not making anybody any happier. No. Happiness is, is about contentment, not about money. And if you're content in whatever situation you're in, then it, and gratitude has a big, is a big uh, support of being happy. If you're grateful, then you're content. And so being content is, in whatever situation you're in, is the key to being happy. And money just gives you options. Yep. And if I could encourage anything is be intentional. Yep. Is that if you're intentional, you're going to see exceptional results. And the last thing you want is to climb the ladder and, and realize you're on the wrong building. Yep. Just be intentional and stop what you're doing and and be intentional with purpose. That's what I tell young men and women is that you're going to get what you want. Right. So, you know, be intentional about your personal life and your dreams there. Be intentional about your professional life and your dreams there. And be intentional about your spiritual life because if you are intentional, get what you want. And you just, when you when you do it in balance, it's a really sweet yeah. uh, outcome. I'm excited for people to listen to this. I'm excited to continue getting to know you better. Well, it's mutual, Chris. Yeah. I think we could, we'll have a lot of, of fun in the future. And you've, you've already had a, a big impact on me. Well, thank you very much for having me. So thank you. And uh, yeah. I look forward to many more years. Likewise. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.